0: Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? We have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Interview Schedule is looking to hire their first product designer. And Girl Get That Money is looking to hire graphic designers. Both of these are remote positions. Companies, stop making excuses on your dni efforts and post your job listing with us for just 99 dollars, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners get started with us and expand your job search today revisionpath.com forward slash jobs you're listening to the revision path podcast A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And wow, this, this past week has really been something Aside from it being our 350th episode, I mean, we have received so much love and support from y'all out there, and it really, truly means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Actually, speaking of love and support, we received a new review from Apple Podcasts. The review is titled, One of the Best Design Podcasts Around. I like the sound of that. (laughs) And it is from Gigi Lestorty. Here it is. This podcast champions the voice for designers of color. Every episode is impactful and inspiring, offering insights into the diverse field of design. Every guest gives me a new perspective and or advice that I can use in my day-to-day. Maurice knows how to relate to his guests and is a true professional. He is also in the permanent collection at the African American Museum in D.C. for his podcast, so tuning in is a necessity. You know what? I agree, and I really don't... <laughs> I don't really hype up the fact that you can find a selection of these podcasts in the Smithsonian, but how many other design podcasts do you know of that are in the Smithsonian from this perspective, talking to black creatives? I'll wait until you find another one. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Thank you so much, Gigi, for that awesome review. I really, really love hearing what y'all think about the show, what y'all think about the interviews, like keep it coming. Keep the reviews coming. I really love to hear those. Thank you so much. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Miles Anderson, a senior product designer on the Xbox team at Microsoft in Seattle, Washington. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Hi, my name is Miles Anderson. I'm a senior product designer with the Xbox design team at Microsoft in Seattle, Washington.
0: Nice. Before we get more into that, because I'm really curious about what it's like to do design, not just for Microsoft, but for Xbox, for video games. How are you holding up right now? I know Seattle was a big hotspot for things that were happening with COVID-19 and everything. How are you faring right now?
1: You know, under the circumstances, I'm doing as well as I could be. It was definitely difficult to start. Uh, I'm I'm a brand new resident to Seattle, Washington. I, I just moved out here right as a lot of the sh- shutdowns and stay in place orders were put in place. So it, it was definitely a little hectic to start. You know, you're looking for housing, you're trying to meet people, explore the city a little bit, and then. The reality just starts changing day by day. So it's definitely odd, but I've been putting a lot of energy, especially lately, into trying to find the best new normal under the circumstances, You know, making sure I'm taking care of myself, my loved ones, still connecting with people, still trying to find the best balance that I possibly can with the circumstances as they are.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, my goodness, you moved to a new city and I'm guessing you already had your housing and everything squared away before you moved, right?
1: No, not at all, actually. I was in uh, corporate housing for uh, what felt like almost a month when I first moved out here, uh, Uh largely because I'm a Southern boy. I'm coming from Texas, and I I didn't know what the Seattle market would be like at all for housing, which I'm glad I took some time to wait until I got here to figure that out. But uh, no, none of that stuff was squared off. So basically, as things were getting more and more chaotic, I was also trying to lock down my housing uh, while staying in a small a studio apartment near Microsoft's campus. It wasn't ideal, but wow. you know, we made it work.
0: I can only imagine, I mean, moving to a new city, then having to find a new place, and then all this stuff is happening during a public health crisis and you're starting a new job.
1: Yeah, man. Wow. <laughs> In hindsight, I probably would have done things a little differently, but you know, there's no way anyone could have predicted.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say old. what what could you have done differently?
1: Exactly. Yeah. It, <laughs> Deal with it as you can, you know. hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, I think under the circumstances, I did the best I could, and we're doing well now, all things considered.
0: Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Now, I think the last I heard, which is maybe a couple of days ago, like Microsoft's extended their work from home policy pretty much for the rest of the year, right?
1: To a degree, I think they're still working out some details, but it seems like in general, with the tech scene in Seattle, it seems like the the idea is to hold off on having you know your full campus of employees back in office until around October. That, that seems to be the general consensus at the current moment. And, oh, okay. you know, it's definitely something I, I didn't think would happen, but, you know, here we are. My remote working skills have just improved. <laughs> Still <laughs> lining there.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking it up now. You're right. Yeah. Microsoft to keep work from home policy in place through October. Had you had any experience working remotely before this job?
1: You know, to a degree, my last job, big global company, and we worked with a lot of people who worked remotely. So I definitely had experience of working with people who were largely remote. But I was definitely a guy who liked to go into the office and like to be, you know, around people, especially with design. You know, a lot of collaboration that happens in the moment that you need to be around people, or at least we thought we needed to be around people mm-hmm. uh, in order to do. I would say now. I'm definitely learning more about how I can be a better remote employee as opposed to just figuring out how I can include people who are working remotely in a office setting. It's me now who having to figure that out, along with everybody else, which is the interesting thing, because it's not just me. It's everyone all at the same time trying to figure out a new way of working and trying to deal with it the best they can. Some people thriving under it. Other people struggling with it more than I'm sure they would think they would have. But I'd say overall, I'm getting a little bit better with it day by day and trying to find ways to improve it even more so. Mm-hmm. But it's a process. I'm sure by the time October hits, we'll all be experts. Yeah. And then we'll be right back in the office again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is Microsoft helping out any with like equipment or software to kind of help work from home, you know, just be a little easier?
1: Oh yeah, I I was a little shocked. Like when when I first started, and because by the time I started, they'd already began doing work from home for all non-essential employees. Before I even really even got to Seattle, they were already doing that. They've put in a lot of time and energy into trying to make the employee base as comfortable as they can. I've been a little shocked by that, by the amount of resources they're putting and making available to everyone, giving people the ability to buy new equipment that makes it a little easier for you to work from home. The management has been really good about carving out time for people to just live and make some sense of what's going on in the world around them. Everyone's been super patient with me on top of that. Like, you know, I just started and who would have expected things would be as they were uh, or as they have become once I accepted the offer. And everyone's been great with me about that, especially as I was still trying to figure out my way around Seattle. But I've been very impressed with what Microsoft and what, what I've been hearing a lot of technology organizations have been doing lately.
0: Yeah, it seems like, you know, I know that there have been layoffs at a couple of companies. Airbnb laid off a bunch of people, Uber, mm-hmm. Lyft, even at, at other companies, they've laid off parts of their workforce. So it's good to see that Microsoft is working to try to keep folks around and make sure mm-hmm. that they're acclimated to this, you know, this new reality that we all have to work in right now.
1: Yeah, man. It's sad to hear that too. I've been really worried about, you know, we all have colleagues, friends, old coworkers that you might not have seen in a while, but, you know, you still have a lot of respect for them. Hearing about people, you know, losing their jobs, their livelihoods under the times that we're in right now is sad. But I've also seen the creative community really, well, not just creative, creative and technology communities really huddle together to try to support everyone to the best of their abilities. And that's been a beautiful side effect of what's been going on. But but still, I get not necessarily worried for myself, but I do get worried about some of my friends that are in industries that, even if they're working as a creative, industries that are particularly unstable in a circumstance like this, like the times like this just ripe for cuts in some industries. And that sucks. And unfortunately, it's happening quite a bit to people right now.
0: Let's talk about your work that you're doing at Microsoft. You mentioned you're a designer on the Xbox design team, and you're fairly new there. What has the experience been like so far?
1: It's been dope, man. That's probably the best way I could describe it. I am not someone who you would consider like your traditional hardcore gamer. I definitely did more so when I was younger, but as I grew older and I have a billion different interests, I'd start dedicating more and more time and energy into things that didn't have to do with gaming and I've always been interested in it, though, still. And I'd say that coming into this space, I wasn't even sure if they would be interested in someone who wasn't a hardcore gamer working for the Xbox design team. But they've been extremely receptive to having someone like me in the background that I have there because, you know, they need diversity of opinion and experiences. And I think that me coming in with a pair of fresh eyes is as useful to them as it is to me because I get to learn so many new things and I think that's extremely important, being able to learn more about the gaming industry, how people think about gaming, how people who use these consoles and the experiences that have grown out of these consoles, how are they using them, how are they interacting with them, what do they think when things change. It's just a lot different than what I was working on previously. And I'm, one, extremely excited to be a part of that. And two, it's been a little humbling to be, you know, the dumbest person in the room. There could be a lot of value in that. And me being the guy who doesn't know everything about gaming, I feel like every day I'm hearing some new term, uh, slang, acronym, and I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is, what that means or the context for it, but now I get the opportunity to figure it out.
0: Mm. What's the, the kind of makeup of the team?
1: Oh, the Xbox design team is pretty significantly sized organization. As a newbie, I I won't claim to know exactly how things are laid out, but I will say that there are various teams that work on various Xbox products because, of course, if you look under the Xbox umbrella, there's lots of things that fall underneath it. Mm -hmm. I specifically work on Xbox Live or Xbox Social to be more broad. But thinking about these social interactions, that occur in Xbox gaming. One is naturally a a social interaction in and of itself when you have people playing with one another. I'm really heavily focused on the mobile app at the current moment. So there's a a lot of work being done around the mobile experiences for Xbox. A lot of that coincides with things that we all know are are happening, like the release of the new console that's gonna be at least slated to happen later this year. Xbox playing around with all kind of new things with that in place, and I'm shocked that I get to work on that stuff because this is this is pretty big. This is significant. These consoles don't drop every day. It's not even like phones, right, where you get a new one or a couple of new ones every year. It's every few years, uh, maybe twice a decade, you see something like this happen. So there's lots of new experiences that are being thought through in, in regards to that, and I get to be one of the designers looking into those experiences, as well as a number of other people who are working on various other aspects of it, like Mm -hmm. the subscription service, Game Pass, or people who are looking at the uh, developer experience. So if you're building games for the Xbox ecosystem, what is that experience like? You have designers focused on that as well. And you have designers focused on the actual console, more the industrial designers who are actually thinking about the physical object, the controllers, how you interact with how they're most ergonomic, Things like that. There's a lot of designers. I don't know exactly how many. I'll have to get back to you one day on that. It's a but growing team, too.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like there's a lot of different parts. It's physical, yeah, with hardware, you know, software, games, etc.
1: And Services, yeah, those. Yeah, it's complicated, man. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah, there was recent news that just came out about the Xbox Series X. I know you're still fairly new there, but did you get a chance to to work on any of that stuff, having to deal with that console?
1: I would say a lot of things that are currently happening are directly tied to the release of Xbox Series X. I myself haven't touched that console experience at all. That's just not what my team uh, specifically focuses on, though there Mm -hmm. will be some things that are probably likely to happen in conjunction with that, because Xbox Live is the main social driver for Xbox. While I haven't touched it just yet, I think it likely will happen by the end of the year, uh, just due to the fact that the new console is releasing. But the, the actual console itself, I imagine they've had that thing in the works probably since the release of the last one, and you start getting feedback from it. I wish I could have, because that has to be a really interesting experience to actually start working on a new console from the ground up, from a design perspective.
0: Yeah. I know a lot of people now are playing video games because... We're sheltered in place, we're at home, businesses are closed, so people are really kind of sinking their time into playing new video games, discovering new games, etc. I don't want to say I used to be a big Xbox fan. I had an Xbox, regular Xbox, and an Xbox 360, but then I also had a PlayStation, PS2, PS3, I have a PS4, had a PSP. I currently have a Switch, but in the past I've had a 3D, well I still have my 3DS actually, it's somewhere around here. So I say this to say that I've done a lot of gaming and I have to give it to Microsoft. And this is not me blowing smoke in any sort of way, but like when it comes to just the live gaming experience, Xbox just has it down pat. Like I'm making that definitive statement on this podcast, (laughs) better than Sony PlayStation, way better than Nintendo. I mean, Mm -hmm. Nintendo got to step it up, but when it comes to really just like the live experience with, gaming with other people and community and achievements and all of that together like xbox is it it's been it for a for a long time you know i mean at at least for the past what 15 years i feel like yeah i don't remember when xbox live first came out but i remember vividly in 2005 playing my xbox 360 Mm. so it's, it's good that it has that staying power
1: Yeah, I think each one of the consoles kind of majors on their own thing, and I'd say Xbox has done a great job with maintaining their presence in the social aspect, which right now, what better thing to have invested in, right? Like, people are trying to connect with each other in so many ways, and I think it goes to show you, one, the stability of the system that they put in place, and also just how engaged everyone is when they don't have the ability to interact with each other day-to-day face-to-face like they're normally used to they're all huddling around gaming and a lot of them are using xbox in order to do it i've seen a lot and heard a lot about just how dramatically our traffic has increased over the last couple of months and it, it just blows my mind while also not being all that surprising largely due to what you were just talking about right like i wouldn't say anybody has ever figured out everything but when it comes to the live experience and social aspect of gaming xbox seems to have really worked that out
0: oh yeah absolutely and i mean they're working it out on the on the live aspect in terms of community and connection and things like that but even with the consoles i mean the latest series of xbox's that have come out, like the Xbox One, there's like the Xbox, I think, One S or something that is like just essentially like a streaming box. So like all the games stream to it, so you don't necessarily have to buy discs or anything like that. So even like that level of innovation, I think, is something that your competitors have not have not really got on the bandwagon with that yet. You know, I mean mm-hmm. I have a PlayStation 4, I have it in the other room. I rarely play it because for mm-hmm. me Playing a PlayStation game is such an immersive experience that I really have to like take time out from everything and like sink hours into it, which is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, especially during this time. You know, I can really sink into like a 120 hour role playing game or like play Tetris, the Tetris 3D thing that's on there and just like get immersed into a whole nother world. But I also have a Switch and like the Switch is I play my Switch a hundred times more than my PlayStation 4 because it's quick. I can pick it. I mean, well, back when we could go outside, I could pick it up. (laughs) I could use it when I was traveling for work. I could always take it with me. The games, I don't want to say the games necessarily were more accessible. I think, you know, and I'm I'm just pontificating on gaming stuff here, but like Xbox and PlayStation 4 kind of seem to really have, well, Xbox and PlayStation in general sort of seem to really get the big meaty, like triple A titles. They get the the mm-hmm. gears of war, the, you know, all that stuff. They get all those big, massive, graphically heavy games. Mm-hmm. And then Nintendo, I think, is still kind of seen as like stuff for kids. Mm-hmm. But Nintendo also has a really big indie game system, like in terms of like developers and like a big community behind that. I think the yeah. problem that Xbox and Sony have solved that Microsoft hasn't has largely been about discovery. So with uh, the interesting thing with Xbox, like I have a Windows 10 computer, and it's amazing now how Xbox and my Windows 10 computer, even though I don't have an Xbox console, I can still play Xbox games on my computer. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's still that level of interoper you know interoperability where the games are open enough to work across not necessarily being on a specific physical device.
1: Yeah, multiple different devices. Yeah, They've invested a lot into that. It's it's crazy how, especially looking now, how beneficial that is, that you can basically pick up any device and play Xbox on it. And I think you'll be seeing more of that investment coming up soon, well, soon-ish maybe. I could say that the company overall seems really invested in it. And I'd say that the fact that Microsoft is so heavily involved with a lot of different things. Microsoft has its hands in just about everything. Mm-hmm. Think about all the opportunities for placement of Xbox in those places. I, I think you'll see more of that in the coming years just because of exactly how you mentioned it. It's really beneficial, and I, I think it resonates with a lot of people, this kind of seamless way of playing games regardless on what device you happen to be on.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the advantage that Microsoft has Over both Sony and Nintendo is the fact that it can tie into a computer's operating system. Like Mm -hmm. Sony has remote play, but like you have to download an app and it's a whole thing. And then Nintendo, you pretty much have to play it on that console. Yeah, on that
1: console. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, man. But yeah. Are you a big gamer? um, Lately, would you say?
0: Oh, lately, yes. Yes. I have put in a smooth 400 hours into Animal Crossing on Switch. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, I have unabashedly. Uh, into the utopia of being on that, you know, sort of deserted island and crafting it into something that is a place that I look forward to when I get off work. I'm like, let me just put on some headphones and just play around on my island for a few hours, you know?
1: Mm. Have you found yeah. therapeutic?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the thing is, you know, we can't control what's happening With this virus and how people are reacting to it and Mm -hmm. different restrictions and things of that nature. And so it's very freeing to play Animal Crossing in that way because the options that it gives you for customization and for just talking to other people. I mean, granted, like I mentioned, the online thing is not great. I mean, Nintendo Mm -hmm. does have its online service, but it's coupled with a phone app, like a mobile app. So mm. like if you want to talk to someone, you can really only talk to maybe I I've only talked to one person at a time. You can maybe talk to more people, but you have to like friend them and then there's only certain games that use the mobile app for voice. It's really clunky. When it works, it mm. works. But it's like it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. Like yeah, yeah. there's way too many kind of steps to make it happen. It's not as seamless like as if I was with Xbox or PlayStation where I can pick up my controller, put on a headset and just play and talk in that same, you know, kind of fashion. But, but yeah, animal crossing is I've played the game a lot. I started playing it when it came on the Nintendo 3ds. Uh, so I didn't play it on GameCube, but I played it on 3ds. And then now this new version is it's great because it's just a nice retreat. It's oh, a, get it. yeah. Like it's a nice place where it's comforting. Like each hour of the day has a certain musical theme. And so you sort of get a sense of like how the game works based on its music, which I think is something that's really interesting. Like during the day, the music is more, you know, a little peppier, like it puts a little pep in your step. And then right around seven o'clock, the music like slows down to like this almost like country western kind of thing. It's really, it's really, really nice. All I can I can say is that it's very comforting to yeah. just like play like I have dozed off playing that game several times. It's been so relaxing. Where I'm just that's like, great, oh, man. okay, all right, it's time for me to go to bed. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm so into it that much.
1: That's great. I, I think, I think right now, that's exactly the sort of thing that people need, and I, I can see why so many people have gravitated towards using Animal Crossing and other games. But Animal Crossing is probably the single biggest one I've seen so many people like connect with over the past couple of months because I think largely to what you're describing that there's just so many people that feel a little hopeless right now and maybe it is a little bit of control of your own w- world but also it seems like the developers and the designers who created Animal Crossing really thought a lot about how people can connect so deeply with these worlds that they're creating and having the ability to manage to a degree in a way that maybe you can't have as much control over your day-to-day life. I don't know. I I think that's intriguing. And I'd love to see somebody write up something about that at the end of all this, like how Animal Crossing was one of the biggest therapeutic experiences for a lot of people during crazy times. Mm
0: -hmm. And, And I think, you know, the interesting thing about it is like the mechanics in the game that allow you to like, Design your own room and, and things of that nature. You know, those mechanics were always around. In this particular new iteration, they've done new things around. Like you can change the location of houses. You can terraform the terrain how you wanted to. These are like wholly completely new mechanics just for this game. Part of that, I think, is because it's on the Switch. So it's now back on a console. So you have more power, but also it just gives you more agency over the world that you're in you can literally shape the world in the game exactly how you want it to and -hmm. i mean if you go on reddit there's so many creative interpretations of how people have designed their towns how they've terraformed their islands etc but it it gives you the freedom and the choice to do that in a time when we don't have much freedom or choice Mm -hmm. in what we're doing you know so it, it tends to be something that people are really kind of getting into, like, I know people that are not gamers at all who have bought a switch and bought animal crossing just to kind of get through this time and it's working. Yeah.
1: Would you say that any of the methodology that you approach to gaming on Let's say Animal Crossing, but maybe in some other things too, where you have a sense of agency and control over the world that you're interacting with. Would you say any of that has like creeped into your real life and your day to day life as you try to manage things?
0: Yeah. I mean, we're doing this podcast. That's (laughs) Yeah, that's great. (laughs) That is one thousand percent something that was my own thing that I could have agency over because before I started Revision Path, I was, I mean, I've been a designer for a long time, career designers, started my own studio, had my own studio for nine years. And I just felt like Black designers were not getting any sort of fair representation or coverage or exposure for the work that we were doing. And, you know, I created Revision Path to be, at first, just a way to talk to these people and just like get their stories out there. And now over the past seven years, it's Evolved more into this platform where people can really find out about black designers and the work that they're doing and discover new people, which has been great. But like over the years through my career and through other things I've done, like I don't want to say this has been like my island, but it kind of has been, you know, (laughs) like I can do this show and talk to who I want to talk to about what I want to talk about or what they want to talk about. And it's just out there, it's not beholden by corporate interests. We do have corporate sponsors, but they don't control the content that comes on this podcast. It's free in that respect where, you know, I just have my own thing. I mean, I still have my 9 to 5 job, which is great. And, you know, honestly, for a time, this podcast was part of that. It was part of my 9 to 5. It's not anymore. It used to be. I'll just leave it at that. But, yeah. <laughs> but like to have the agency to like design the show how I wanted to, to change up the branding, to change the music, to choose who I want to talk to and what I want to talk to, and all all of that is been such a freeing thing for me to have. It's sort of been an anchor in a way through what could otherwise be a very kind of tumultuous time because entrepreneurship is always a roller coaster, And then especially if you go to work for a company, companies change, you know, things can kind of just happen. And so the fact that I have this show and that it's this one thing that is mine, but also belongs to the community Mm -hmm. in a way is a really great thing. Like, absolutely.
1: How much of this would you say has changed dramatically from your original vision?
0: Well, at first, you know, Revision Path was going to be just text interviews. Like, Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be almost like a, I don't know, like the people of black design, I guess. People Mm -hmm. Magazine, I mean. And that you had, like, these long form, I wouldn't even say people. People is is more supermarket fodder. Like Vanity Fair. It would be like the Vanity Fair of black design. And you would have these long form interviews that would be in depth that would talk about the work that they do and their inspirations and stuff. But it just took too long to put all that stuff together. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I think I was maybe about three or four months into doing Revision Path and someone who had been, you know, kind of reading the interviews and stuff, she was visiting Atlanta, and she wanted to know if we could just record something. And I didn't have any kind of recording equipment or anything like that we Mm -hmm. recorded at a local restaurant on my mobile phone the audio is not great it's episode one of revision path but Mm -hmm. i did keep it i kept it because i wanted folks to kind of see like this is where i've gone like this is what the progression has looked like so yeah
1: that's important too man i feel like with all things progression is really what it's all about. You have to start somewhere. I think so many people get bogged down with not really exploring something to the extent that they could because they feel like, I'm not ready. I don't have all the audio equipment yet. I need to have thought through this a few more months before I've gotten started with it. But, But I think it's beautiful that you have that very first episode with the crappy audio quality and you can look back on that and say like, Hey, we did the very first one with what we had available at the time and see how far it's grown. What over 300 episodes later?
0: Yeah. Uh, actually by the, man. by the time this one comes out over 350.
1: Oof, beautiful, man. <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. I, I wanted wanna, to, I, I'm learning from that. I, I need to take <laughs> something away from that. That's amazing, man.
0: I, I wanted to have that, that kind of upgrade path of, you know, you want to start somewhere, but then, you know, have a place to go. Because I think especially with podcasting and podcasting at that time, like we're talking 2013, this is when I think sort of the big second wave of podcasting started. Mm-hmm. Folks were really consuming a lot of podcasts like Serial, etc., but not mm-hmm. necessarily really diving into it themselves because they didn't know which microphone to get or what preamp or what software and, you know. There's a lot of hucksters in podcasts. There's a lot of people that will try to pull one over on you in terms of, you know, they'll see that you may not know exactly what it is that you want to do. So they'll try to talk you into this mic or taking this course or buying this book or something. And it's really to give them more money. It's not necessarily to try to get you any closer to your goal. And especially I'd say within the past few years, there's a lot of people that join podcasting or try to become podcasters strictly for the money. This is not a money making industry. Like, let me tell you, you're fortunate if you're able to break even, I think, but people will see like the sponsorships and stuff and think, oh, I need to, I need to get some of that. It's not that simple, especially now that there are like hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. And what's interesting now, you know, we're talking about the pandemic, like even podcasts, listing behavior is changing during this time because a lot of people Mm -hmm. listen to podcasts during commutes, commutes. whether it's commutes in a car, whether they're on a plane or a train or something like that. Now you just have a lot of people at home. I don't know if a lot of people are sitting at home just listening to podcasts. I mean, I do that, but I'm a nerd. I don't know if other people are really doing that. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it, there too, so. yeah. And especially now there's, you know, coronavirus content. So there are people that are consuming that in lieu of maybe watching the news or something to that effect. So it's an ever changing kind of industry. I got into it to be able to tell stories, to have other people tell their stories. And so mm-hmm. that's sort of what keeps me doing it. You know, that's what keeps kind of the, the love of revision path going is being able to, to be that platform.
1: Yeah, I mean, based off what you're saying, it seems like that's the right attitude to have. I think anytime you start solely focusing on how can I get more money, you're doomed to fail or to come across in a very unauthentic way. And when I think about what you're specifically striving for and what I think a lot of people are striving for, if they're trying to tell a story, it's not necessarily to make a million dollars, though. Be nice to make a million dollars It's more about I want to communicate something that I don't feel is being communicated at least maybe not as well as it could be and I feel like I have something to add to that conversation mm-hmm. that people might enjoy or might resonate with even one person. I feel like if you if you have that mindset then yeah the equipment the, the hucksters that you mentioned they don't really matter quite as much because you can always improve the quality of what you're doing over time. But when it comes to do you have anything that you are even interested in talking about or are you just trying to make a quick buck? Well, there's lots of ways to make a quick buck. Many of them aren't very healthy. And I'd argue spending <laughs> a bunch of your money, time and energy on any creative pursuit solely because you want to try to squeeze out a couple of extra dollars. Like I say there's never value in doing that because, you know, everybody got to eat. We got bills and you got to do what you got to do. But it doesn't seem sustainable to me. It doesn't seem like something you could keep doing for 350 plus episodes anyway.
0: Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, because your audience is going to change, just the world is going to change, you know. I've been fortunate that as we've been doing this show, the topic around diversity and design and really just really diversity in tech and in the like digital creative fields in general, is something which is still very important when it comes to representation, when it comes to, like, you know, you said sustainability into the future, wealth building, et cetera. Mm. It's still something that is very valid. And so Revision Path still continues to be relevant to this day, even though we're like ancient in podcasting terms.
1: Yeah. OG, <laughs> man. You got OG status.
0: Yeah. So before you were working at Microsoft, you were in Austin. You Mm -hmm. worked at IBM for a number of years. Tell me what that experience was like.
1: Oh, man. I tell people all the time, IBM changed my life. I had a completely different design trajectory before I started there back in 2014. I don't even really know where to start. I came in right as... The design transformation was being led by Bill Gilbert and a number of other extremely talented designers. They brought me on kind of like one of the first initial wave of hires as they were trying to hire over. 1,500 designers. I was like the second wave of of designers to come in. So I I started there pretty early in the whole design transformation. And I'd say it gave me a great path for the rest of my career. I learned so much there from so many amazing, intelligent, hardworking people. I I really can't take away much negative from my experience there. Though, of course, there's always day-to-day stuff that uh, irritates anyone but when it comes to the overall experience of being there man i'm I'm glad i took a chance to apply to it because to be honest i didn't even really know what i was getting myself into when i dropped an application in at ibm uh, almost seven years ago today wow yeah
0: what sort of projects did you work on there
1: oh the key area i left working there oh working at when I uh, before I left was with uh, IBM Cloud. I specifically worked on a team called Dev Tools, which looked at the experiences for building products on IBM's cloud development platform for specifically users who were developers or DevOps engineers. That was a Crazy thing for me to get myself involved in. I didn't know anything really about development other than like, I know HTML and CSS, you know, basic stuff that a lot of designers end up learning. I didn't know how complex delivering a software solutions actually was mm-hmm. until I started really working in that space. Now I did several other things at IBM. I, I got the chance to work on some big vision projects that never really saw the light of day. I got to work on, in an organization by the name of DBG, the Digital Business Group, where we were trying to build the first modern self-service software marketplace for IBM uh, Put a lot of time and energy into that and I got to collaborate with a bunch of amazing people there. I'd say the best experience though i had in terms of actually working at IBM was definitely working on IBM cloud just so many amazing people who i miss dearly i shout out to anybody who might be listening from IBM cloud a bunch of amazing talented designers that i learned a ton from and i'd say my experience there largely helped me grow as a designer in a lot of ways, like the actual craft of design, but in many other ways as a leader and a collaborator. Working with people is a complicated thing on the best of days. Working on these complicated products on timelines that are really, really short with people who understand the user base way better than you do was no small task. And I think a lot of the designers who came into IBM in the last, let's say, six or so years, maybe almost seven years, uh, any of the designers came in and understand this struggle. It's a lot. It's a very technical space. It's something that you aren't really taught to understand fully when you're in design school. And it was even worse for me because when I was coming out of school, my program was still very print and advertising-based. We didn't really get that much education around, like, what, what we would now call UX design or UI design. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't even take into account like actually learning a domain space that I think a lot of creatives, I don't wanna say they shy away from, I just think they have less exposure to it, right? Like these really technical spaces. Uh, a lot of creatives just gravitate towards other things I think quite frequently. And being able to live in that space for years, man, it taught me so much. It helped me grow as a person, not just professionally. It was a lot. I really do have nothing but positive things to take away from my experience at IBM. It helped me become a much better designer.
0: Nice. So let's, you know, kind of switch gears here a little bit. Uh, you mentioned you're from Texas. What part of Texas are you from?
1: H-Town, Texas, man. Houston.
0: Okay. Houston, Texas. All right. Was design and tech kind of like a big part of your your childhood growing up?
1: Yeah, man. A lot of times, I like to say, design was like the perfect career for me. I was into art from the get go. I'm from Houston. I wasn't born there. I was an army brat. We moved around a bit before we landed in Houston, Texas, which is my mother's hometown. I've lived there since I was around eight or so. I was interested in art from the earliest I can possibly remember. Like, I kept sketchbooks, I would draw nonstop, and I was good at it naturally without much education in it whatsoever. And we didn't grow up wealthy. We didn't really have the resources to take any extra classes, and anyone who's gone to like uh, public school with not that many resources that's overcrowded. The arts just aren't really things that they invest heavily in. So I I didn't really get a lot of formal education there, but it was always like a deep love and passion. And you partner that up with just this endless curiosity I had as a kid. Uh, I liked tinkering with things. I would take electronics and take them apart, try putting them back together. I always thought technology was interesting. I was really into (laughs) sci-fi as a kid, Uh, sci-fi TV shows, movies. Technology was always something that I was really interested in. And it was encouraged too, right? Like I'd say more so than the art piece when it comes to like what my parents actually wanted to see me invest my time and energy into as I got older. And, you know, those questions come up, but like, well, what are you going to do after high school? I was getting pushed to like, Hey, go be an engineer, go learn this technology stuff, go get into computer science or something like that. But my heart was really more with the art and I took that direction. Um, learned about design random. I didn't know really anything about what it meant to be a designer other than like what most people probably think about, like, oh, like a fashion designer or like an architect or something like that. I I randomly found out about it my senior year of high school from one of my old teachers who just happened to explain that he had gone to school at LSU to study design. And I'd never even heard of it before. He talked a little bit about his background not too differently than what I am right now, and it just matched a lot of my own personal experience. And I was like, "Well, maybe this is a good career path for me." And yeah, the rest is kind of history. I, I went to Texas State University, has an excellent design program. Got really more into the craft of design there, but the interest in technology really never went away. And I think being a designer in the tech industry, which is a broad term, right? Because everyone does something different. Every company's focused on something a little different. Mm -hmm. I think it's really more about the approach to problem solving that they take. It's very technology-based. It's based on the latest, greatest technology. And mixing my interest in art with my interest in the latest and greatest technology, I just kind of found a a good place for me to exist. It took a a minute for me to get here, but I, I I think the landing here is exactly, one, what I wanted, and two, what fits really nicely with me and my personality and my own personal interests.
0: Do you feel like, I guess, your time when you were at Texas State University, did they really kind of prepare you once you got out there in the working world as a designer?
1: Yes and no. (laughs) I tell, like, younger designers that I meet all the time, like, you got to get some work experience under your belt, whether it's an internship or something along those lines, like anything, because it'll put you so much more, it'll just make you more prepared. You'll be that much better prepared to work as a designer by getting a little experience with it. I'd say that, yes, I learned a lot of fundamentals. I learned a lot about collaborating with people, but I also learned like plenty of bad habits on my own You know, personal work ethic and things along those lines, like a lot of kids do, right? And you're in college, you're still trying to figure out how you can best be productive, how you can get things done. And Timelines are different. Everything's just different. So I would say, like, yeah, I learned a ton about design and the craft of design, and that prepared me a lot for speaking about design, talking about my work, taking criticism, things like that. That was definitely great for it. But for what I was particularly interested in, less so. The, the, the program was just a more traditional graphic design advertisement art direction, that sort of thing was really the big focus of that program. And this is somewhat a negative of public universities is that they tend to be slow to change. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that to knock them. I understand these are big, large, bureaucratic organizations that there's a lot of moving pieces. To just up and completely change curriculum for any major is a difficult task, and there's a lot of people involved. And when i was in college the iphone came out and kind of made everything that we were learning bend closer to this technology space because every company just started trying to invest so heavily in design particularly in the tech sector mm-hmm. and i knew second the iphone came out that was the sort of design work that i wanted to do and i took whatever i could from you know the teachers that i had amazing teachers tom burno Samira Kapila, just so many people that were just amazing, awesome people who taught me a lot about how to be a desi- like a good designer. But I'd say actually working as a designer, it took a lot of self education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to pick up a lot of that on my own. Uh, some of it through my working experiences, and some of it just taking some extra time or energy into trying to understand these things for myself. Uh, I-, I think that's something that everybody should do. If you want to learn something, you shouldn't completely depend on teachers teaching you. At some point, you got to take some of the initiative yourself and figure some of these things out, like work through it, be wrong, be bad at it for a little bit. But then eventually you won't suck and you'll be okay at it. And then from there, you'll be all right at it. And then who knows, years later, you could consider yourself to be quite adept at that thing. So I'd say overall, yes, I learned a ton of great things from a bunch of amazing people. But in terms of preparedness for actually working as a designer, particularly with the sort of things that I do now, a lot of that came on the job.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned self-education because, you know, back when I was learning HTML and even learning CSS, it was really at a time when there were not a lot of resources out there. I'd say there were probably more resources for me learning CSS. And this is when I say, I'm thinking maybe like 2000. Four to 2007 ish, maybe. But like prior to that, you know, like in the late nineties up to that sort of mid two thousands part, like there was nothing. There was this yeah. one book. Well, there were probably some other books, but I remember vividly this one orange book that was just called HTML it was like a thousand pages and it had every single like HTML tag and how you used it and all that stuff. But there was a lot of like reverse engineering of pages that already existed on the web you viewed the source code and you figured it out Mm. like now there's no shortage of you know courses and boot camps and self-guided tutorials and there's youtube videos and podcasts and there's so much stuff out there now to try Mm -hmm. to learn how to do these things which is good but also it sort of floods the market because if you're just starting out you're like okay what's the best thing for me to start with in order to learn this language and you get analysis paralysis because there's so many choices. And and one thing that I usually will tell designers, you know, if they're trying to learn, maybe they're trying to learn code, but even just like learn a new technology or something is to sort of like include it as part of a project. So that way you're really like teaching yourself, but you're also doing it with something that you're very interested in doing. So like, if you want to do a fan site, you can learn that language to build a fan site or something like that. You know, something that you are passionate about outside of just, the sake of building or creating, you know, you can kind of attach it to yourself in a very personal way. And so, yeah, that self-education part is really important because there's just so many other options out there and like everyone doesn't learn the same way.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's excellent advice too. Like keeping things project-based, so much you could do with that, right? You, You can time box it. You can say like, I'm not expecting to be an expert at this thing, but I want to learn as much as I can by scoping it to this period of time for this particular project, and we'll see how much I learn from it at the end of that. You can actually do a retrospective at the end of it, like, well, how much did I actually learn? Did I run into any problems that if I had more time, I'd do things a little differently? Maybe I learned something that I need to go and learn about if I want to do this more, I'm trying to take that same methodology into like personal things that I want to do just outside of even just a professional work. But, Honestly, I'd love to learn more about content creation and actually releasing things on your own that doesn't require a suite of developers and a lot of product managers and other designers to collaborate on. And the way I plan to approach it is exactly how you're talking about. You can learn anything if you're willing to put the time and energy into it. And time boxing it, making it clear what you're trying to do, I think helps tremendously because it takes a daunting task. That analysis paralysis, and I think it turns it into something tangible. And it says, you know, I can whip up this the front page of this fan site. I can knock out the home page if that's all I'm scoping it to. Let's see what I learn from it. It's probably going to be weird and maybe not approached in the way that I would if I had 10 years of experience in this, but you got to start somewhere. And somewhere you should make that place somewhat approachable or tangible or something that you can wrap your head fully around.
0: Yeah. So you've only been in Seattle now for a few months. You've kind of been in this lockdown. How has it been in the city so far? Have you had a chance to even just venture out a little bit?
1: Yeah, man, uh, to a degree. When I first got here, there was still a lot of things open. And while you could tell a lot of the populace was starting to be a bit more conservative in how much time they were spending outdoors and around people, I literally didn't have that luxury when I first landed here. Like, I was trying to find a place to stay. I had to get out and about and go do things. And uh, the silver lining there was just there was way less traffic. <laughs> going around and I had a lot of ability to move around without the traffic, the uh, large numbers of people being around, that was okay. I'd say as the weeks progressed, it became a lot more difficult because more and more uh, companies started shutting down based on you know mandates from the state. Mm-hmm. And you know th- th- that sucked at first because I felt like, oh man, I was just doing a little bit of exploration and now nothing. But I'd say I've worked my way around that now too. There's still plenty of things available, like the great outdoors. I do like spending some time outside. I wouldn't call myself like a super outdoorsy guy, but there's lots of parks that you can get out. You can social distance very easily in Seattle just by getting into nature a little bit. And that's something I've definitely tried to spend some time doing. The neighborhood I've moved into is called Ravenna. This beautiful neighborhood in Seattle, uh, northern Seattle, n- not too far from the University of Washington's campus. But there's lots of walkability out here, and it's a little less condensed than like the downtown area. So you don't feel like you're like on top of people the same way that you would be downtown or maybe in some of the other really urbanized neighborhoods in Seattle. So there's still some space and distance, but there's lots of trails, parks, places to go walk. I have lots of nice walkable grocery stores nearby, so this is all part of keeping my sanity is just making sure I get outside, get a little sun, especially as the weather started to get really beautiful out here. Mm -hmm. Seattle Springs in summertime, as I'm seeing, are quite gorgeous, (laughs) especially compared to what I'm used to with the heat, which would be beating everybody down right now in Texas, and it wouldn't even be really getting all that hot yet. So at, at this point, I'd say getting outside is probably the best way I've been able to explore and keep my sanity. Sometimes it's taking long drives, getting up, doing little mini road trips to nowhere. I'm just going to go see some of the sights, looking at the mountains, the trees, the hills. That and getting fresh air, I think, has been really helpful. That, that's been the best exploration I've been able to do so far.
0: Nice. So let's, you know, kind of switch gears here. I know we've talked a lot about your career, we've talked about gaming, etc. Let's kind of, you know, go a little deeper here. I'm curious with the experiences that you've had with working at IBM, now at Microsoft here. How do you define success and how will you know when you have it?
1: I think I look at success in a few different ways. You have like my personal success and then you have like project-based success. From a project standpoint, there are always metrics uh, that you can use to define what success means. And I think that's normally like a very collaborative thing. I, I always would try to take in or provide, I should say, a perspective on what I think success in that particular scoped project would look like, whether it could be increasing viewership or things like increasing task completion rates for users, things like that. Are very tangible success metrics. Uh, th- yeah, again, those are always like very collaborative, uh, working with a lot of other people to figure out what makes the most sense there, and also what's possible. What can we track? What can we understand? How well instrumented is our product so that we can understand user behavior? behavior just by taking a look at the data. Data is king in, in that particular scenario. Being able to define success by letting the numbers speak for you, I think is really, really crucial. But then you have like what I consider my personal success, which is to me a little different. That's something where you definitely can tie metrics to it, but I think it's a little bit more difficult. I tie my own personal success based on whatever I'm working on at the time. So, And, and by working on, I don't actually mean professionally. I mean, personally, I'm always working on new things. I might look at a, a new project that I started on for work and I've decided that, hey, over the next quarter, I want to spend more time trying to figure out how to be a better collaborator and teammate. So success on that front could look a lot different. It could be more about, did I successfully engage with my teammates? Did I uh, have as many one-on-ones as I had planned to set out for? Did I actually reach out for feedback for, from people as many times as I expected to. Uh, Things like that are a little less tangible, I should say, because they they kind of evolve based on internally what I'm trying to work on. And I'm always trying to work on something different, whether it's being a better collaborator, trying to take on a a better or more leadership roles, I should say, uh, on my team, trying to be a better listener and less of a talker. Things like that are always uh, circling around my mind and based on whatever that thing is at the moment, I try to apply some level of way of measuring how good or how bad I am at, at that task.
0: Is there something that you're really proud of that you would never think to like put on your resume?
1: Ooh. Yeah, there's a few things. One big one is I am the first man in my family to ever graduate from college That's a a big one for me because it was a very proud moment for me uh, when I graduated back in 2012 from Texas State. I I don't think it's something that I choose to like broadcast on my resume or anything like that, but it definitely is something that I'm very proud of. But that's a great question. There's probably a billion things like that that I don't really put in my resume because I tend to treat my resume as a very, I don't want to say a technical document, but it, is, it very much is me just explaining what it is that I do, how I've done it, and how I've been successful at some of the things that I've done or what I learned or took away from my actual working experiences. But that only goes so deep, right? Like, there's a lot of things that I'm proud of. I'm, I'm I'm, proud that I made it to 30 without ever going to jail or anything like that, or being a statistic, especially when you look at black men or uh, young men of color. I'm super proud that I was able to do that, uh, especially growing up in rougher areas where a lot of people who I grew up with just don't share the same experience uh, in life that I have right now, just based on decisions that they made or circumstances outside of their control at the time. So those are things that I'm really proud of as well. I'm proud that I'm an uncle. I'm proud that I spend a lot of time and energy trying to be a better member of my family. And uh, I don't have any children myself, but my oldest nephew doesn't have a father really around. And I I try to be a big father figure for him where I can, because I didn't grow up with a lot of men around me. Yeah, I could probably go deeper and deeper and deeper there. There's a lot of things that I think just can't be captured in a resume that I'm personally proud of.
0: If you knew that you couldn't fail in your professional life, what would you try to do?
1: Be an artist, uh, like a studio artist. That's really what resonated with me when I was younger. I always loved that. I always wanted to spend more time and energy into it, but I always felt like as a designer, I needed to be able to make a living. And I'll be honest, I didn't have a lot of faith in myself as just an artist, especially once I got into an art program and started meeting all these people who just had way more experience, way more education in art than I did. I I never felt like I could compete with them. But if I knew I couldn't fail or uh, knew I would be stable financially and wouldn't have any problems, I would definitely dedicate a lion's share of my time to trying to produce art and hone that craft more and more. To be specific, probably painting. I uh, really got into oil painting and uh, portraiture, like drawing portraits, while I was in school. And I try to carve out time to do that still, less so lately, of course, under the circumstances. But if I knew I couldn't fail, I would definitely dedicate the bulk of my time to just being a free artist and letting artistic expression just flow.
0: Now, one thing that we've kind of had as a running theme here on the show this year is about basically like Black Future 2020. I guess it's kind of a good way to put it. I'll ask this question to you that I've asked to other guests that I've had on the show this year. How are you using your skills to help build a more equitable future?
1: One, I'd say that I I utilize my time a lot to make myself available. Things like this, Uh, anytime anyone asks me to talk, spend time with, chat, particularly when it comes to people of color who are interested in the creative fields. I always try to dedicate as much time or energy as I have available to it, uh, whether it's big or small, because I think exposure and just having an ear to to speak into uh, someone who's been through at least maybe a little bit more than you have is extremely important. So, one of the main things I try to do is spend a lot of my uh, time with it. And I think I need to bump that up, especially now that I'm in a new city around new people and new places. I think there's more I can do in the Seattle area that I couldn't do in uh, Texas or in Austin or to spread what I was doing in Austin and make it happen out here too.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, I know this is kind of a very, Interesting time with starting at a new place. You're in a new city, mm. but you know it's 2025. Hopefully, all of this coronavirus stuff is well behind us. What kind of work do you see yourself doing?
1: Largely because I spent a lot of time recently trying to remove myself from thinking about that too, too much. But since you asked, I'd say I'll put it this way: five years from now, I'd like to be uh, doing a whole lot less design work to the pixel. Uh, I'd like to be doing, I'd like to be spending my time as a designer doing other things, whether that's uh, strategy, whether that's building a business, whether that is mentorship, education, something along those lines. Five years from now, I hope I'm not pushing pixels as much as I am today. And that, that's not to say that that's a negative thing to be doing. I've done it for years, and I've seen the amount that I've done it drop over the years just because I've taken on additional roles. But five years from now, I'd hope that I'm dedicating my skills as a designer to different avenues and different ways that perhaps I wouldn't even imagine could be possible today, especially with how crazy the world is and how m- much it's likely to change in the coming years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: I'll be the first to admit that I'm not great at uh, publicizing myself a lot online, <laughs> but I'm trying to be better at it. Uh, for 2020, that's something you'll see Miles putting a lot more time or energy into. So, uh, for the time being, feel free you can uh, find me on Instagram, just Miles underscore and and as in Anderson. Uh, on Instagram, you can find me on LinkedIn, of course, just Miles Anderson on LinkedIn. As well as on Twitter, Miles underscore and on Twitter as well. You'll likely see a lot more of me in the coming months, but definitely a lot more this year. I have some thoughts on some things that I can do to create a better presence online. So you'll you'll see that soon enough.
0: Well, Miles Anderson, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I mean, it's interesting, like you're like the third person that I've had on the show. I'd say within the past few months that had just started a new job, just moved to a new city and now all of this is happening with the coronavirus and you're having to kind of adapt to these new situations. I think certainly, you know, I can tell just from talking with you that you have not just a strong sense of self, but also just like a strong, resilient personality that will help you to get through this. And so I know that you're new at Microsoft. Things are still kind of in a weird spot with not really knowing what the next few months are going to bring just in terms of this pandemic. But mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you've got a good attitude about yourself and about how this is all going and that you're at least taking the steps to make sure that you're handling this, you know, kind of day by day and and kind of seeing it through. So I just want to thank you so much again for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it.
1: No, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with me. And I hope anyone who's listening is able to take something positive away from it.
0: Big, big thanks to Miles Anderson, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Miles and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So, what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Just like I did with Gigi's review, I'll read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time.